Okay, hello everyone and welcome to the Actus podcast, Talking CDI, the nation's only program dedicated to the clinical documentation improvement profession. The Actus podcast is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and to Actus. Today, Wednesday, July 31st, marks our 129th program. And I can't believe we're almost to August. We were just chatting about this with our with our guest today on the show. All right, so my name is Brian Murphy, Director of Actus, the Association of Clinical Documentation Improvement Specialists, and I'm your host for today's program, Actus Mailbag, a Listener Questions. I'm joined today by my co-host at left of the screen, Laurie Prescott. Laurie, of course, is a CDI Education Director for us here at Actus in Middleton, Massachusetts. She's the developer and lead instructor for the Actus Bootcamp line and is a subject matter expert. She's a former CDI manager and a nursing manager with experience in med surge, ICU, PACU, and endoscopy. Welcome back to the program, Laurie. Thanks, Brian. I'm excited for this one. Uh, all right. Next, I'd like to introduce our special guest today. So we have with us for, I believe, her second appearance on the Actus podcast, uh, Don Valdez. Don is the CDI Manager of Education at Ardent Health Services in Nashville, Tennessee. By way of background, she's been a neuroscience ICU nurse for more than 20 years and now teaches CDI specialists about various CDI topics. We're going to be going through a number of them today. She also has a background in legal nursing and was a master bill auditor for the payer side of healthcare for 12 years. Prior to her current role, she was a nursing preceptor in the neuro ICU at Emory University Hospitals. You may remember her. She presented a great session for us at our 2018 Actus Conference in San Antonio entitled Taking the Mystery Out of Encephalopathy. We're going to be covering this topic a little bit today. Glad to have her back. So welcome to the program, Dawn. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Well, as we always do, we're going to start with a poll question related to today's topic. Uh, because this is sort of an open-ended sort of mailbag listener uh, questions poll, I had a hard time coming up with a poll that would cover all of these. So I thought, you know, I'm going to be a little selfish and ask what people want out of the Actus podcast going forward. So what... What uh, So the question reads, what suggestions or changes do you have for the Actus podcast? Talking CDI, do you want more shows based on audience questions uh, like we're going to do today? Perhaps more clinical topics and speakers? Are you looking for more innovative ideas, uh, case studies of successful hospitals? Maybe you're looking for more leadership or management type of topics. Or do you think the show is great? Keep it as is. <laughs> I won't be offended if you don't pick that one. Uh, again, what uh, what suggestions or changes do you have for the Actus podcast, Talking CDI? Uh, more shows like today on questions, clinical topics, innovative ideas, case studies, leadership and management, or keep the show as is. And I will say, um, you know, I know you can ask, obviously you guys know you can ask questions during the show with your handy uh, question pod 
if you have some ideas that you specifically you want to ask about or some questions, suggestions for me, go ahead and use that. I'll be monitoring those. I do download the transcript after the show, and I'm happy to take a look and see if we can accommodate. Okay, we're going to go ahead and close this out at the time, and we will come back to these results as we always do um, as we after our interview. So again, we're joined today by Don Valdez. Don, I want to thank you for being a part of the Actus podcast and coming on the program. Um, as I mentioned, you know, the, the sort of the genesis for this program was questions sent in by Actus podcast listeners. I got some pretty good pathophys patho type questions, questions related to clinical queries. Um, so Don, you generously agreed to answer some of these as well as add in some additional scenarios that you typically encounter in, in your role as an educator. So let's just, um, let's go ahead and jump right in. Um, okay. This question reads, this was one submitted by a, a listener. Um, we have a lot of discussion regarding demand ischemia versus NSTEMI. There is constant confusion and discussions on coding these. And the person asked, do you have any recommendations on what to, what you look for in the record for a query, you know, other reasons for an elevated troponin or anything you've done in your organization to help with this complex issue? I know this is a complex sure. one, Dawn, so I'll Sure it is. It is. <laughs> um, you know, it's actually nice that we're not the only ones struggling with this. This seems to be an industry-wide um, topic here of concern. So for NSTEMI type 2, you know, the thing that we have to do as CDI is you're exactly on point. You know, what things do we want to put in the query? So we want to look at, first of all, what the definition of an MI is, and that's the presence of cellular necrosis. And then it's going to be in combination with a clinical presentation of some type of ischemia. So that's where the very first thing that I look for you know, where's the necrosis, how's it showing up, what are the comorbidities. If you have a patient that has absolutely no history, you know, NSTEMI type 2 and demand ischemia might be a little evasive in capturing. But usually our, our patients these days have tons of comorbidities that they show up with. So we're going to look at those. We're going to definitely look at the biomarkers, which these days the number one is going to be the troponin. And you want to see that rise and fall of at least uh, one value that's over that 99th percentile. And then you want to look for your changes. Where's the ischemia showing up? Is it on your EKGs? Because if the heart isn't being perfused and that muscle isn't getting that oxygen, it's going to show up in the conduction system because the, it's going to throw everything off kilter. So you're, you should see some EKG changes, but not always. There's variance with that. ST changes, left bundle branch blocks that are just now showing up, your pathological Q waves, you know, these are all things that we look for. And then you also want to look for that, you know, what is, it, are, did they do an MPS? You know, is there an NSTEMI? Did they go to the cath lab with that? You know, so where is the loss of the viable myocardial tissue showing up in that patient? So you collect all these clues, and at the end of the day, this is where we get into the conundrum from my experience, and that's where we usually have hospitalists that are attending, and then they consult the cardiologist. Well, cardiologists vary in how they look at this. I know some cardiologists that, you know, they don't really get excited about 
in STEMI type two until the troponin is greater than 20th, you know, 20% over the top. Other ones have different criteria that they use. So how we decided to approach this, because we don't really have control over that, the cardiologists will come back and say, nah, this is just demand. The hospitalist is still writing in STEMI type two. We're clarifying it, you know, maybe the query gets answered in STEMI type two because you're asking the hospitalist in the majority of cases. So we had our teams go to their cardiologists in the different facilities that, that I work for, and they had that conversation with the cardiologist. How do you see demand ischemia, and what makes you feel that it's an, you know, it tips the scale to end STEMI type 2? And they talk about that, and then they made a poster, a cardiac demand ischemia slash end STEMI type 2 poster. And then you want to sell that to the chief of hospitalists if you have the dynamic that I described. Now, we do query our hospitalists when they're the attending in my world. So, you know, everybody's dynamic is going to be a little different. But when we query the hospitalists, we need the chief to be on board because then we can get some reinforcement when we see the same copy pasting of the NSTEMI type 2 and not really, we don't even really see evidence that they're acknowledging the cardiology consult. And we're just starting this off, so we'll follow up at another time maybe with you, Brian, and let you know if we're seeing a decrease in the conflict. That will help the coding side of it tremendously. Yeah, I, I, I'd love to follow up with that to see how that's progressing, Dawn. Some great great insight there. Dawn, that's, that's excellent advice. I feel like I'm uh, talking to my sister here because that's exactly what we teach in our classes. So... That is, good, good. that is perfect. Um, I'm The next question that I'm bringing up is from a reader, and this is a real common one that we hear um, quite frequently. And I love that you're stressing the critical thinking, because I think that's what's going to come into this question as well. Um, the questioner says that our facility has a misunderstanding of sepsis as a checkbox situation. Some staff see leukocytosis and tachycardia in the record and believe that is adequate to generate a query. Can you talk about some of the recommended clinical indicators for a compliant query that truly supports a clarification? We're also having I some sure. issues. I'm going to add just more. I'm going to give you more. It's a twofer. Um, they're also having some issues related to sepsis and the patient safety indicators and when to, how to determine whether sepsis was present on admission. So it's a double one for you. Uh, yeah, that's a good one. I can definitely talk about this because this happens to be one of my hot buttons. So the very first thing that I want to say starting off to address the sepsis conundrum, number one is the SERS criteria being adopted started out with the sepsis surviving campaign. That's because we had hundreds and thousands and thousands of patients dying every year back in the day. And I mean, we're going back a couple decades now, right? So now we've gotten ahead of it. Now we had all those protocols come out. They had to be on the charts. We had core measures, if you remember, if you're a bedside CDI, you know, a nurse CDI. Um, and we really got ahead of it by early identification, throwing those broad spectrum antibiotics on there that cover both the gram negative and the gram positive so that we could, you know, we get that fluid in them to stop that vasodilatory effect that definitely goes along with severe sepsis. And we started seeing the reversal of so many deaths. So I just want to put that out there that that's how the whole thing began. Now, 
decades later, we are ahead of the game. And I think now we have a different problem, which leads into the question, what really is sepsis? Is it SERS criteria with an infection? Here's my answer. With any focal or localized infection, so pneumonia, cellulitis, uh, UTI, whatever it may be, what are the signs and symptoms? You're going to have leukocytosis in the non-immunocompromised patient, right? The average patient, healthy patient, you're going to see that leukocytosis. That's the body's immune, rea immune reaction to the normal infection. You're also going to see tachycardia, tachypnea. You'll see a fever. And, and I'm not talking about cancer patients. I'm not talking about HIV, immunocompromised patients. That's a different subset. But for the normal 80% patient that gets diagnosed with sepsis, those are the normal criteria that goes along with the infection. Now, that infection, once it festers, and over time, maybe they didn't go to a doctor for a week or two. So I always look at the beginning presentation. You know, how long have they been sick? That's clue number one. Now, we know not all people are made equally, so there's going to be variables with that. However, they just got sick last night. You know, I, I have a hard time buying that that's a septic scenario. So what I want to see is that infection festering and spilling over into the bloodstream, which makes it systemic. Now, that bacteria or virus is traveling to every organ in the body every second and through the blood. So 40% of the blood volume goes to your brain. I want to see some type of altered mental status. You don't always see that. Again, not all patients are made equal, but I'm looking for that in the record. The next thing I want to see is that vas are they having that vasodilatory effect of that bloodstream infection? So when those bacteria or viruses multiply, they have an endotoxin that they excrete as a waste product. All cellular metabolism has a waste product. Every living organism is made that way. So those endotoxins, there's different studies with different opinions that I, I tend to follow the NIH more than anyone, but you will see talks about the endotoxins will embed into that vascular bed, that arterial bed, and they cause a vasodilatory effect, just like SIRS has that inflammatory effect. It's no different. So that's why you can, you can pour fluid liter after liter after liter, and if you've ever been in an ICU setting, you've done that. You, you put them into ARD or CHF because of the vasodilatory you know, dilatory effect that's happening, it's not until those antibiotics, if you're hitting the right target, that you're going to see that vasodilation normalize, and then you can back off of your fluids, you can back off of your pressors. So now I'm describing severe sepsis here. There's another phase before that happens of the patient, maybe we just catch them in time. Maybe they get sick very quickly, and they're not as strong. Maybe their immune system is a little compromised in other ways that they don't even know about. So you want to look for the lactic acid, the procalcitonins, CRP. Um, when I say CRP, I'm a little hesitant because there's so many people that have inflammatory diseases. Diabetes could be one of them. If your A1C is high, uh, glucose is known to create a lot of uh, catecholamines and systemic responses that cause inflammation. So that can mask that CRP. So just be careful with their history. Same thing if you're using tachycardia as one of your indicators, make sure they're not an AFib RVR. 
You know, if your lactic acid is elevated, make sure they're not an active cancer patient. So there's other reasons, just like with the elevated troponins, which I will circle back around to. I forgot to mention that. That was part of the question that I read on the NSTEMI. But there are other reasons why lactic acid can be elevated, why CRPs can be elevated. Look at your glucose in a non-diabetic patient. And remember most of all, lactic acid comes from the breakdown of glucose. So if you've got a patient in DKA or they're very hyperglycemic but hasn't tipped the scales yet to HHS or DKA, they're going to have a high lactic acid level by default. And lactic acid actually alters neurons. And that's why I look for altered mental status. So I hope that gives you some more uh, in-depth stuff. As far as the PSI question, you have to have a procedure in order to have the sepsis with the, that results in the PSI. And you want it, the sepsis has to definitely be shown afterwards. And I'll round it up by talking about your PS, POA, PSI stuff with one quick initial story. Had a uh, a nurse come to me and asked me if I would look at a case because she was thinking that she needed to query for a collapse with a PSI for sepsis. And they were looking for the source and they were thinking it might be the line. Well, the first thing I did is I went to the very first beginning of that ER note. I looked at what time they came into the ER and what time they got admitted. Then I looked at what time the line was dropped, what time they got intubated. I looked at all that timeline. My, my very next step was I wanted to see the time of that very first CBC. And then when I went to that CBC, she had a white count of 20-something. I immediately dropped down to my absolute neutrophil count because that's going to show you those immature baby neutrophils. So we've lost the war. The, the regular lymphocytes or the T cells are gone, right? The neutrophils are, are done. They've been annihilated. And now the babies are being pumped out in the draft, so to speak, in the war. So that's what your neutrophil absolute is, and that was sky high. That was like 15, and it has to be at least 10 in order to qualify for sepsis. That was my clincher, and this patient was septic walking in the door. And, that's, and then the next one was drawn an hour later, and it was even higher, and then the sequela continued. So we did not have to ask that question about that line because it was very clear when you looked at the timing of things. So I hope mm -hmm. that gives you what you're looking for. That's a uh, that's a great case study there, by the way, and um, I think they could use you on, uh, on on CSI here, Dawn, because you certainly did a lot of detective work on that. That's uh, some great information for our audience there. Definitely. Um, yeah, we're 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 running a little bit long here, but I think we'll we'll take at least one more of these questions, um, and then maybe we'll maybe we can have you address the last one via email, but. Um, this last one was um, was from another listener who said, we are having some issues with dementia versus encephalopathy and distinguishing one from the other. Other some classic presentations with encephalopathy versus dementia that we can use to educate our CDI and coding staff. Yeah, you get good encephalopathy question. a lot, yeah. Yeah, it, it never goes away. Um, so acute encephalopathy is a transient condition. So you would always expect them to uh, be returning to or at their baseline as the treatment for the underlying source is implemented, okay? So always look for that baseline mental status and the return to it. That's number one. 
with dementia, obviously, it's a permanent chronic condition. They're not going to go backwards, but they have these little acute exacerbations, especially when they're taken out of their normal uh, arena that they're used to and they're plopped into the hospital setting. So you're going to see things like um, usually the agitation, hallucinations can sometimes be delirium. It can also be sundowners with dementia. Um, but the agitation is usually what I look for. How do they act? Are they acting out? Are they aggressive? Uh, you typically don't see that in an acute encephalopathic scenario. So those are two things that you can look for. But the CTs are going to be negative in an acute transient phase because it's diffuse. There's no one area you can point to in the brain and say this is where it's coming from. You know, um, dementia is the global atrophy um, there's uh, more things that go into that in a different conversation, but that's basically you want your imaging to be negative. You want to see a return to baseline with the correct source being treated. If they don't return to baseline, that's the biggest indicator for me that I might be dealing with a dementia case. And sometimes it's undiagnosed. So I hope that helps answer that question. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Dawn. Um, you know, I think maybe we'll, we'll kind of wrap up here, but, um, I would like to ask you, Don, um, just, uh, kind of how you keep yourself sharp clinically. Obviously you, you covered a lot of different scenarios. Any, any resources that you use, um, on the, on the internet or paper-based or that you, you'd recommend that folks, you know, have to keep up to date on some of the clinical changes um, that, that you might use in your own practice, have found helpful for, you know, researching these issues or self-development, uh, I think might be helpful to share here. Well, the number one thing is my Bible is the uh, CDI pocket guide, and I'm not paid to say that. I'm not trying to sell it. It is the God's honest truth. Uh, my, if you saw my pocket guide, you would definitely know that because it is worn and torn. It is my Bible, so to speak. So okay. that is the best place to have all of your hot highlights right in one place. So I highly recommend studying that. Number two, my recommendation is the more you know about the human body and diseases, the most common ones that you see, the more you are going to be able to understand and identify things in the record. And that's really where that critical thinking piece that we really need to have comes into play. So dig in, ask why does lactic acid elevate and sepsis? And you're going to learn a whole lot. You know, what is a BNP? You know, what is it in response to? Where does it come from? What is that troponin? What are other diseases that can be, you know, mass that elevated troponin and start digging in? Um, up to date, one of our supervisors just sent me a link to that. I absolutely love it. Um, I do a lot of NIH research. I mean, I am an information junkie. So ask yourself the questions, you know, why? Why is this showing up? Why is the vasodilatory effect so important to identify sepsis and, you know, things like that. And that will take you very, very far in your career with CDI, in my opinion. Lori, you feel free to add to that if you have anything else. No, I feel like you're speaking my words. Um, it's definitely, it's just asking questions and, you know, use your physicians as resources. The internet is awesome. Use um, your coworkers as resources and always ask that one more question because that's the information that's going to help you with the next record. 
Yeah. And remember, this is a vast, vast subject. Never feel dumb for asking a question. Never. I mean, that is so important to have your esteem intact. Don't be afraid to ask those questions because this, these are big subjects and we can't amass them all. So, you know, just keep asking. Right. And I hate to bring this up, but I'll mention it just to, just to get Laurie in sense that we, we were just chatting before the show started. <laughs> CDI is not a retirement job. You know? I think, if you think it is, and you've, you've got a, a lot to learn here, as we heard from exactly. Don. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks for that, Brian. Yeah. All right. Well, let's jump back to our poll question. Again, we asked folks, um, what suggestions or changes do you have for the Actus podcast talking CDI? So. Our majority here, 51%, like our clinical topics and speakers. We got a lot of great comments, Don, about your your Q&A session today, and a few other questions came in. So obviously, this is a popular popular subject, uh, followed by more innovative ideas and case studies, more shows based on audience questions. I think people like today's program. 11% um, like the show as is, though. So that's 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 nice for me to know. Uh, this is this was great. This is great feedback. And if you do have any others, you know how to get me. You can you can either shoot me a you know message or a, a suggestion right here in this chat pod, or you can email me after the program at bmurphy at actus org. All right, I'm going to go ahead and uh, close this out, and we're going to in just a moment jump over to our in the news segment. Just need one moment here. Okay. So, in the news is a regular regular segment featuring the latest news and industry updates relevant to the CDI profession. Uh, since we covered some clinical issues today, I thought this article uh, relevant and worth sharing. It's from Medscape.com, and it, the headline is "The Big Three Diseases Account for Most Diagnostic Error Harm." As I always do, I will provide the link to this article in the show notes. We record all of our shows and post them on actus.org. Uh, but just to summarize from this article, I thought this was very interesting. Uh, Misdiagnosis-related harms are concentrated in the big three areas of vascular events, infections, and cancers, new research suggests. So the findings come from analysis of nearly of nearly 12,000 malpractice claims and were presented at a Capitol Hill briefing sponsored by the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine, or SIDM. I'm going to scroll down a little here further. Um, the study by David E. Newman-Toker, MD, Professor of Neurology at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore and colleagues, um, was simultaneously published online in Diagnosis. So this is a, a report of that diagnosis, um, uh, the article on that website. I'm clicking over to that now. This was actually pretty cool. You can you can really dig into the study here um, below. It's got um, you know collapsible uh, references to the study itself. You know sort of how, how, what what the criteria was, the discussion conclusions, some of the acknowledgments, the materials and methods. Really gets into some of the statistical data and how they broke that down. Uh, but again, just to summarize and jump back to the to the um, initial article I pulled up, 
diagnostic errors are the most common, most catastrophic, and most costly medical errors, both for society and for individual patients. A place to start is with the big three, cancers, infections, and vascular events. Together, these account for about 75% of the serious harms from diagnostic error, said uh, Newman Toker, who's one of the uh, authors of the study. Um, some interesting statistics here. Diagnostic errors account for 34% of all medical errors that cause serious harm, and 64% of such errors lead to death or permanent disability. Uh, they account for 28% of all payouts for medical malpractice, with a median payout of $766,000, um, Newman Toker noted. Um, I like the story because it stresses the, you know, the, some of the solutions here to misdiagnosis as a team effort. And, you know, just hearing you talk today, Don, uh, you know, I really believe that CDI can, can play a part in this through their process of clinical chart review. Obviously, we're not, CDI professionals aren't diagnosing the patients, but they're helping physicians arrive at a more specific diagnosis. Um, and really, it, it goes into some um, thoughts here about the sort of the clinical conversations with the physician and treating team to arrive at a more accurate diagnosis. Um, some really positive quotes, even though this is a, obviously a grim article with some grim statistics on the, the, the degree of error and the, and the price of such. But it does say with these new findings, the uh, author states, we've started to gain insights into how to move the ball forward to fix this problem, but only if we work together and um, commit seriously to making a difference in this area. Um, we're kind of running short on time here, so I won't go into all this. It's an article worth checking out. It, it's about uh, it's a couple pages here, and you can see it generated a lot of comments. Medscape is frequented by physicians, and there are a lot of comments here from, from doctors that are interesting to, to check out. But just curious, Don, if you had any thoughts on this piece, and and any role that CDI can play in, in preventing mis misdiagnosis. Absolutely, I think I think you're right. We can be an advocate for those physicians. Again, we do not diagnose, but we can ask the questions. Help me understand why. When, it, again, it goes back to understanding the more you know about the human body and the disease process, the more you're gonna be able to identify and the more questions you're gonna know to ask. That ultimately may lead to saving a patient's life and helping a physician as well. You never know, so I think it's wide open. Right. Any any thoughts, Lori? I'm just listening to you, thinking it takes a village to take care of patients. So it's everybody on the team, and the most effective physicians I've ever worked with were the ones that realized that. So um, we can certainly help with this, and it's all about that critical thinking that we were talking about earlier. Yep. All right. Well, let's just wrap up here quickly with an Actus update. Um, you might have seen the, the, the commercial slide at the beginning of the program. Um, we have a, a next conference coming up in November, and the next couple shows of the Actus podcast will be focused on some sessions and speakers we're having at the Actus Symposium Outpatient CDI. This is a outpatient CDI-focused conference. This year, we're at a beautiful spot, uh, Hyatt Regency in Austin, Texas. I've never been to Austin myself, so I'm very interested to, to get out to Texas and learn uh, from some of the nation's foremost experts in outpatient CDI. Hope you can join us for the program. We are gonna be featuring some speakers from that program on the next couple shows. 
uh, of the ACTUS podcast. I think you will all like the next program. Speaking of clinical issues, we're bringing uh, Dr. James Manns, who is with the uh, Mayo Clinic, and he's going to be talking about um, some clinical, common clinical uh, scenarios in, uh, for clarification in the outpatient setting. And Dr. Dr. Manns will be speaking at the uh, ACTUS Symposium on this topic. So hope you can make it back for our next show. Again, that'll be in two weeks on August 14. Keep those comments coming. I got some great ones already via email as well as through our chat pod. So this was going to help us shape the show going forward. Don, amazing job today um, covering Thank some you. tough questions. Really appreciate your expertise and hope to have you back on the show in the future. And as for everybody else, we'll see you back here in, uh, in two weeks. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.